This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Well, uh, still just sweet to be uh, together with you again in God's word. Uh, if you're if you're new or newer to our church, uh, you'll need to know this. Uh, we we love and cherish God's word here at Mosaic. Uh, so it's a, it's it's our practice to preach through the Bible. And you've caught us really right in the middle of preaching through a book in the New Testament. It's called Acts. And so uh, if you've brought a Bible, you're welcome to to open that now or to slide that on if you've got a kind of a digital version of that. Uh, if you're new to the Bible. Uh, Acts is, um, it's an exciting book. Um, It records real historical events uh, in the world that happened um, as implications of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So what what we see contained in these 28 chapters of the book of Acts are real historical events. These, these actually happened. Um, there's, there's inside and outside testimony to them happening in history. And, and so that's where we find ourselves. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 13 of this New Testament book. And I, I feel like I do this a little bit every week. It's just kind of farm in some information about the book. Just We can get kind of get in the thick of it. Just kind of forget where we're at in history and in the story. And so let me, let me do a little bit of that. Just kind of arranging context for us this morning before we read the passage. Um, in, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, uh, the author of the book, his name's Luke. Luke um, wrote, uh, he was actually quoting Jesus, uh, the ascended Jesus, who said uh, that these followers, these early followers of Jesus, would be his witnesses um, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so the first seven chapters of the book, we see um, God primarily working in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, uh, we see it branch out a little bit more regional now. So Jerusalem was kind of like headquarters of of the Jewish faith. And now in in chapters 8 through 12 was Judea and Samaria. And now in chapter 13, we see this transition uh, to the end of the earth. So the, the scene shifts um, to an island called Cyprus, and it'll continue through the end of the, the book's recording in chapter 28, where the gospel reaches Rome. So chapters 13 to 28 uh, is the end of the earth, as the, the, the modern um, you know, Israelite at the time would have known the earth. So the fact that the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome um, is, is a fulfillment of, of Acts, 1, Acts 1, chapter 8. But another transition we see in chapter 13 is kind of the central character or the figure. Up to this point in the book, we've, we've seen a lot of the activity of Peter. And if you were with us last week, Peter um, has just, by a miracle of God, uh, been released from imprisonment and impending death. And so now we see Peter's going to be a little bit more of an underground type of worker. And the, the, the narrative shifts to a man named um, Paul. You, you may have heard of him. Um, he actually undergoes a name change in this chapter. He was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. 
And beginning in this chapter and forward, he'll be known as Paul. And I'll give you some reasons for that here in a minute. Um, but Paul, who I'll just call him Paul from now on. So we, we all know I'm talking about Saul, who was converted in the early chapters of, of the book of Acts, is now Paul. And he's the central uh, character that God will use um, to expand his kingdom on earth through the proclamation of the gospel. And again, just one more little just kind of context-orienting thing, just history-wise. So Paul was converted from Judaism. He was like an elite Judaizer. He was a, he was a follower of the historic Jewish faith. He was converted about a year after the death of, and resurrection of Jesus. So we'll, we'll call it year 34 AD. Um, he spent 12 years um, kind of preparing for this day. Uh, he would have spent um, th- uh, three years in Arabia. He spent seven years in his hometown of Tarsus. He spent another couple years in the church of Antioch, which we've been talking about. For a total of 12-ish years, it's give or take. Scholars are kind of trying to figure out all the timeline. But it's been about 12 years since he's been converted to the faith. So we're now in, in 46 AD-ish. And Paul begins what's called by many his first missionary journey. So today's passage, chapter 13, um, is the, the, the opening, the kind of the inauguration of Paul's first of what we would identify three missionary journeys that would last for about 11 years uh, total for all three missionary journeys. So these journeys, even though we read them on paper, they seem to be kind of like fast, paced, and quick, and exciting. That wasn't necessarily the case. This was over a span of years. And, and, and Paul, to this point, has already been preparing for a span of 12 years. Um, this morning's passage um, is, a, is a unique work of God reaching what many would say is the first purely Gentile believer. Now, we've seen Cornelius and the Ethiopian eunuch and some other kind of Gentiles, but these were God-fearing, familiar with the Jewish faith people. Um, I was I was texting with a friend a couple days ago, and uh, he's a uh, he, he actually some of you know him. He was in our church for a while. Stephen Harpole, the Harpoles moved to Houston. They're from Houston. They're back there now, and we've been watching a little bit of baseball. And uh, the the Astro, if you've been following baseball, you'll know the Houston Astros kind of deep into the playoffs. And we were we were kind of struggling as a family. Uh, if you know the backstory on the Astros, they got they got busted for for doing some cheating. Um, using stealing signs and stuff so they knew what pitches were coming uh, last year. and So it's just kind of been this big kind of stoning of the Astros. Like nobody likes the Astros right now. So I texted my buddy because we like the Astros. Like our family's been rooting for them. They're kind of a scrappy, ragtag kind of team. And so I t- I, we were struggling. Can we root for the Astros? I don't know. Let me ask a real Astros fan. And so I texted Stephen. I said, Stephen, like, can we root for the Astros? Are you still mad at them? Because he was mad at them. And he said, you know, Adam, I'm not mad at them anymore. Um, I feel like they've been punished enough. And here's, here's what he kind of said this. He said, the fact that they are going into game seven, which was last night, they lost, sadly. But the fact that they are going into game seven, the final game of the American League Championship Series, with injuries, having lost, um, you know, a lot of their players through trade, they're kind of like a restart team. Uh, he basically said, you know, they have no business being in this game. They just—they don't have any business being in this game seven of the. So he thought that was really sweet. Today's passage 
uh, introduces, to us, introduces us to a man named Sergius Paulus. And he has no business being a Christian. None at all. But the Lord opens his heart to belief. Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read the first 12 verses for us this morning. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul to uh, uh, summons Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, fool of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord this is the word of God for God's people let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it father we we need to hear your voice this morning and so we turn to the only source of life that we have uh, the words contained in scripture uh, breathed out by your spirit and embodied by your son Lord, help us to see Jesus clearly in the text this morning that we might apply these things to our lives and leave here changed forever. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I had a kind of a first for me during a pandemic this week. I attended my first virtual conference. Uh, maybe some of you have done that for work stuff or continuing education kind of stuff. Um, we, we belong to a, a network of churches called Acts 29. I mentioned it a few weeks back. Um, Acts 29 is just a, 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 it's a, it's actually a global network of churches um, that are committed to planting more churches. And uh, they, they actually have an annual conference. I've been able to attend it occasionally. I don't go every year, but uh, this year it was, it was a virtual offering, uh, and it was free. And so uh, we were able to make it. I, I invited some of the staff and leadership joined us for that. And it was, it was just really neat. It was really well done, uh, you know, just a couple days, a few hours in the morning or whatever. And uh, probably my favorite part, there were, there were a couple great, great, speeches, uh, you know, call them sermons or talks or lectures or whatever. They, they kind of have a, a blend of both. But there was a, a couple great, and, and really what they, were, what they were doing was they were, they were calling us back to our roots as a network. 
Um, if you've been around, maybe some of you have been around Acts 29 churches. Uh, maybe you haven't, that's okay. Uh, but if you've been around kind of churches that, that talk about church planting or starting new churches, there's, there's, there's some vocabulary that usually flows out of that. And some of the vocabulary that's been used and that was kind of stirred back up in this conference was that we want to be, um, quote, missional churches. Uh, another kind of catchphrase that, that's used a lot in churches like ours is that like we don't want to just go to church but we want to be the church it's kind of like that kind of action language and they really did a great job just kind of connecting that to to what it means to be the church in the middle of a obviously a global pandemic and in an election year and in all the heightened kind of things that we're going through it was just it was like a call to arms like let's go and be missional and reach our neighbors and friends and coworkers with the gospel and let's let's go be the church in the world and, and probably my favorite part of the conference was in between the sessions, kind of the, the, the main speaker sessions, they would show video kind of vignettes into the life of, of, of churches in our network. And so they would do like a little, you know, a little video just kind of appearing into the life of a church wherever. And it just, it just felt super connected, like you know, it's, it's easy to be in Albuquerque, just kind of like an island unto ourselves. And like, yeah, we're in a network and yeah, we chip in money and yeah, we go to conferences. But it's kind of, you don't feel that kind of vibrant connection with other church. But it just kind of rekindled that in me. And and everything, like almost, almost to the video, every video just connected that like, no matter how different we are in our settings or in what kind of ministries we're doing, like we're all really doing the same thing. Well, we all kind of have the same mission. Uh, and churches, you know, we have mission statements. Uh, there's, there's actually five total Acts 29 churches in the state of New Mexico. We need more. But there's, there's five of us. And it got me thinking, and, and I kind of just, I went to the websites after the conference and looked, looked at the, everyone's mission statement. Like, just to kind of see if it, just kind of, they resonate. And let me just quickly read those to you. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the churches or anything. Let me just read the statements. We desire to see all of Farmington changed by Jesus. We exist to spark a passion for God through his gospel in the hearts of the people of Santa Fe so that they will ignite the world around them for Jesus Christ. Third one, we are a group of transformed disciples who live before the face of God for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. We want to see Albuquerque and the world change through the gospel of Jesus. And then finally, might be my favorite one, but I'm biased. Um, we exist to bring the beauty of the gospel to the broken places of our lives. Now, you, you hear all those statements, and that's like, you know, that's pastors, you know, with spare tr time trying to come up with like really catchy things, right? Like we're trying to catch kind of our mission with some language that'll stick with you. That's, that's really what we're doing. But underneath all that kind of big language, every single one of those mission statements has these components to it. One, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God, okay? So every one of them had the gospel in some form or fashion in it. Two, transformation and or change. 
every one of those longs for things to be transformed, made new, and changed in the city, in, in individuals. And then the third component is, is people. People both inside and outside of the church. Those mission statements all capture the same thing. Churches exist for the power of the gospel to change people's lives. What we see in Acts chapter 13 is the power of the gospel beginning to do that. And kind of the question I want to I just present as we unfold this passage is I want you in your mind, and, and, I, and I know we're, just, we're just, a, just a scattered, varied group of people, which I love about our church. Who does the church exist for? Some of you are inclined to say, well, it's for Christians. Like, it is for believers to come and worship and be built up in the gospel and hear God's word preached. Yes. And others of you will say, well, it's for the, for the world, that we would go and reach the world with the gospel message of Jesus and that lives would be changed and people would be brought into the kingdom. Yes. So I'm kind of giving you the platform for that up front, but what we're going to see in this passage is that the church exists for both God's people and God's world. Here's how I've kind of, I've kind of framed the passage, what I see happening here for us in chapter 13 is I see, you know, I see two types of people. I see people that have been found out by grace and people that are still lost in darkness, right? So in, in verses one to three, I want us to talk about sending the found. And then in verses four down through 12, I want us to talk about finding the lost. Okay, so sending the found, finding the lost. Let's, let's talk about sending the found first. Um, the passage, to, the wind is blowing my Bible everywhere. I don't have this whole passage memorized, but um, the passage begins um, in, in Antioch. If you've been with us, you'll know in Acts chapter 11, Antioch was this major metropolitan city where the gospel began spreading, advancing. People were getting good news, brought into the life of the church. And so Antioch is this kind of small, uh, youngish, it's probably two years at this point, two years old. Um, it's, it's a small, young, kind of fragile church plant um, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have been at that church now for probably the two years, training up, equipping, like, you know, theologically training people in the gospel, preparing them. And, and Antioch is now ready to send out its first missionaries. Like, that's what we would call them, right? The first people that are going to leave this church and go out to reach other people with the gospel. And there's just a few things I want you to, to kind of notice up front is that there was, there was already some structure um, to this church. Um, so call it, you know, First Presbyterian Church of Antioch if you want. You know, they might have been Presbyterian. I don't know. My, my hunch is they were. Um, but they were, there were prophets and teachers in the church. Now, these are, these are not offices. So these, are, these were functions and gifts of individuals. And when they say prophets and teachers, it's really one pairing. So when you, when you hear prophet, you might be thinking like tarot cards and like kind of foreknowledge telling. That's not, that's not what they meant. They, they were largely proclaimers of truth and teachers of the faith. And so as, as you look in you know, chapter 13, they list five of them. 
you know, you go, you go to First Church at Antioch's, you know, website, you go to the staff and, and bio page, right? And like, here they are. Like, these are, these are the ones that were kind of at the upper level of leadership teaching kind of stuff. Uh, just walk through those with me quickly. First, we have Barnabas. Uh, we know a few things about Barnas, Barnabas. We know he was a Levite. And so he was a Jewish priest, uh, his hometown. Uh, he's from the, the island of Cyprus. So that's important. We'll, we'll kind of circle back around to that. We've got Simeon, who was called Niger. We don't know anything about him other than his name implies that he was a dark-skinned man, perhaps from North Africa, gravitated to Antioch for, because of its trade center nature, right? The, the metropolis area would have attracted a largely diverse population. So here's this man. He's, he's in Antioch. Lucius of Cyrene, uh, maybe he's one of the guys that didn't get the memo in Acts chapter 11 that they were only supposed to be speaking to the Jews. He's the one that started going out and good newsing people from all walks of life. We don't know that. It's speculation, but perhaps he's one of them. Uh, Mananean, who was a member of Herod's court, that's significant. So somebody who was in, you know, in the court and the cabinet and the office of the one who was persecuting these Christians. He came to faith. He's in the church. And then finally, Saul, who we, who we now know as Paul. You know, converted Jew, the Jew of all Jews. You know, the first among equals. Like he was the one now converted following Jesus. And we see uh, that kind of the components of life in the church was worship and fasting and praying. Uh, it's kind of just the nuts and bolts of what the church was doing. They were gathering together much like we were, likely on Sundays, possibly even outdoors. They were worshiping together. Uh, they were fasting. And when, and when you hear fasting, don't, don't hear like skip the meal because like Paul was preaching too long at lunch. Like they were intentionally missing nourishment in order to, for, their, for their souls and spirits to be nourished and to hear from God. And, um, and they were praying. Uh, praying regularly together as though it actually changed things. And what happens when the church local is committed to things like that? The Holy Spirit speaks. Now, I know that makes like some of your skins crinkle, particularly you Presbyterians, but let me just, let me just say something about this. A couple things just to note. First thing, this is post-Pentecost. So a lot of us kind of in our theological frameworks will say things like, well, after the Spirit comes and the Scriptures come, like we don't really need God to speak like that. But this is post-Pentecost and the Spirit speaks. Now, we don't know what that, what that's, what that was. Do we, was it an audible voice? We don't know. Was it that kind of quiet soul whisper? We don't know. But, but it's very clear. The church was doing these things. The church at large was doing things. And the Holy Spirit confirmed, set Paul and Barnabas aside. I've got something for them to do. And then if you, if you notice in 13, uh, verse 3, they did some more fasting and praying, and then they sent them out. I came across this little, um, kind of little anecdotal. There, uh, Mother Teresa did an interview uh, once. I don't know who it was with or anything, but she did an interview, and they were talking about prayer. And um, the, uh, the interviewer asked her, you know, what do you say to God when you pray, Mother Teresa? Like, that would be good to know. Like, how do you pray? And her response was, I don't talk. I simply listen. So the interview kind of taken aback. Okay. So when you pray by just listening, what does God say to you? And she says, well, he doesn't talk either. 
He just simply listens. And there was this long, awkward pause in the interview. And she broke it up by saying this. If you don't understand what I mean by that, there's simply no better way for me to explain it. And I, and I just kind of insert that there because, because uh, you know, we see things like this in Acts and we say, like, they're, they're worshiping, praying, fasting, Holy Spirit speaking, confirming. Like, why doesn't that happen in my ordinary experience? And I would like to say it could. Like, like it could. Like the, the church, you know, largely, particularly, and I'm just, I'm just going to throw us under the bus, just the modern American church. We have largely looked at the Holy Spirit as a power to be leveraged, not as a person to be listened to. And, and I, my deepest longing is that we would be a church that listens to the Spirit of God and what he is doing in our world. Because if and when we become that, if we become a church that listens to the Spirit of God, he will use us in mighty ways. These are people that have been found out by grace. And what God is inviting them to is a life of his presence in the world. And the beautiful thing is, um, you know, I think we look at the early church and we think activity. I want us to begin looking at the early church and think presence. Like when we talk about missionary work or we talk about what we want to do as a church, how we're going to reach our city, the world, all the things, you and I primarily think activity. And I want us to begin to shift into a gear that thinks presence. Like I largely believe the way that God works in the world is merely through the presence of his people. There's a, there's a Trappist monk, 19th, 18th, uh, 20th century Trappist monk named Thomas Merton. And he wrote a, an autobiography uh, called Seven Story Mountain. And he records this interaction that he had uh, with a, uh, with, with, uh, I, believe it was a, I believe it was a Muslim person. Uh, not sure, don't quote me on that. But he's, he's having this interaction. They're talking about the work of missionaries in the world and how they had very little effect in Southeast Asia. And he begins talking with this man, like, and he asks him, like, why do you think our missionaries haven't been able to be very effective uh, in, in this part of the world? And his answer, I believe, was spot on. The answer, and I'm paraphrasing, but it is essentially was this. Listen, you Christians think that you need to go and start schools and hospitals and do all those things. And, like, as important as all those things are, that's not what we need. He said, he said, the reason your missionaries aren't effective is that they aren't holy enough. He, he, in essence, he, the, the Thomas Merton's summary was, they need us to send saints to them. They need the presence of God in their worlds. And so I guess the invitation, let me just draw a little bit of application for you this morning, is that... God is interested not in your activity um, for him, but that your life would be lived with him in such a way that your presence was felt by the unbeliever. That it was, that, that, that your kind of the, the lostness of unbelievers would sense your foundness in him.
the sense that you are grounded in something so much greater than yourself. So what God does in the church is he calls sinners into the life of the church and then he sends them out as saints. And don't hear me like saints, like you've got it all figured out, like you've got it all together. I got somebody's sweatshirt this morning said like, your brokenness is welcome here. Like that's, that is the essence of our church is like this authentic, raw, open to vulnerability. We are broken vessels here. But somehow, mysteriously, God heals us in a way that we can go to the world and be a presence to the world. That's what I believe is happening through Saul, Paul and Barnabas. You know, they've been in the life of this church. Paul's been, you know, at this for 12 plus years. And now he's be- being sent to be a presence in the world. So that's what, that's what sending the found is. That's what the church at Antioch was doing. Finding The sinners were found out by grace, now sent into the world to be God's presence. Well, let's talk about kind of finding the lost, what it looks like when we go out into the world. Uh, the text tells us that they are, were currently at Antioch. Uh, they made a stop at Seleucus, which is kind of the coastal town, and then they sailed over to the island of Cyprus, which, you know, we're west in the Mediterranean Sea at this point. And so they're, they're sailing over. They arrive at Cyprus, and there's no, you know, rhyme or reason why they would go to Cyprus. And here's my, you know, it's speculation, imaginati- imaginative speculation. My thought is Barnabas is thinking, okay, God's called us to a work. He's sending us out. Where should we go? Let's go to my hometown. I know, like, I know where all the good spots to eat are, right? Like, I'll take you to Sadie's on 4th Street. Like, I, I, I know how to get into the Balloon Fiesta where you don't have to get in. Like, I know where all the spots, right? So, I, so Barnabas, that's my hunch. I think Barnabas was like, let's go to my hometown of, of Cyprus, the, the island of Cyprus. Uh, they show up on the, on the far east end of the island, which is Salamis, um, and they begin, uh, they, they go to the synagogues first, Right? So this is even Romans 1.16, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jews first and also to the Greek. So their methodology is like, let's go to the Jews. They're familiar with the background. They know what we're talking about. This is the Messiah they've been waiting for. They begin the work with kind of the religious people. Uh, but then it advances and it goes all the way west to Paphos. doesn't tell us much about in between, but let's just think for a minute. Like these men were traveling by foot, slowly, methodically, you know, week to week. We don't know the time frame, but it took time. Uh, they weren't just preaching sermons all the time. It wasn't just like like a, a substance fest, right? It wasn't just like, hey, let's cram Bible and doctrine down their throats all the time. It, it was life. Like they were stop by stop, house by house, people by people, interacting in the markets, shopping, Right? And, and so we see kind of this, this, this methodical move until they meet these two individuals. Uh, so Sergius Paulus has called for the presence of, of Paul and Barnabas. He's heard about these men that are going through and they're kind of spreading this, this word about Jesus. And he's heard about them. He says, listen, I want to hear what they have to say. And Bar-Jesus, you know, he's after job security. So the, the text says he's a magician or a sorcerer. You know, don't think, you know, rabbit in a hat and a never-ending scarf in the sleeve. Think um, advisor with wisdom, right? So he, he, he was going to have some divine wisdom and insight, and he hears that there's this new kind of show in town, right? Jesus has come. He's 
claimed himself to be the king of the Jews, and he's got, he's got this wisdom. And so Bar-Jesus is after job security. He's one of Sergius Paulus's advisors. You know, he's like his right-hand guy. And he's like, listen, you know, stay away from these guys. You don't want anything to do with this message. But Sergius Paulus says, no, I want to hear what they have to say. And here's, you know, the thing. Paul comes with this uniquely spiritual authority. You know, he calls down the curse of God on the magician. He says, here's, here's how you're going to know that we've come with an authority that is not our own. You're going to be blind for a few days. Sorry about that, right? Like he just says, like, you're going you're gonna to be blind. And Sergius sees this man, you know, the mist falls over his eyes. He can't see. He sees Paul come through on what he said he was going to do. It happens and the man comes to believe. He comes, he comes to faith. Um, the, the name um, Bar-Jesus is, is important. I'm going to kind of circle back around to this, but Paul's, you know, his spiritual authority is invested in his language, right? He says, you're not Bar-Jesus, you're Bar-Devil. <laughs> I mean, literally, it says Bar-Diablos, right? You are not a son of Yeshua. You are a son of the devil because you are opposed to this message. So Paul, you know, he, he, he holds no... No punches there. He shows his spiritual authority. Let's just kind of back away from that now. So here's Paul and Barnabas, you know, traveling through Cyprus, telling people about Jesus, you know, stop by stop, person by person. They come to this very influential man, Sergius Paulus. Um, and, and, they, and they speak the words that God has given them about the gospel. But but there's there's something there's something just just slow, and trusting about the whole process, like trusting that God was going to bring the right people that they needed to talk to at the right time at the right place. There was just something slow and methodical. I I just can't get around about it. Uh, there was a book uh, written by a, a Japanese man. Uh, it's called Three Mile Per Hour God, and the premise of the book is that God travels at three miles per hour. Uh, which is the average walking pace of a human being. So that's a fun fact for you. So three miles per hour. And, and the premise of the, of the whole book is that um, we, we have to slow down our lives so that we can catch up to God. That God's method in the world is slow. It's three miles per hour. And you and I, we are inclined to living at, you know, 80 miles per hour. And so I guess the invitation that, that I'm just, I'm extending to you is to slow down in order to catch up with what God is doing in and around you. Because I'm convinced, studying Acts thoroughly now for months, that God's plan to reach the world is through you. I'm convinced. You know, God, he can do whatever he wants however he wants. He could do it fast and flashy, and he does that sometimes. I'm not saying he never does that. But it, it appears to me that the way that God ordinarily and commonly works is through the presence of his people with other people. So, so I mean, you, you, know, you, can, you can do some application. Let me just tease it out of you for, for yourself. Is just, are you too busy to catch up to what God is doing? Because God is doing something. And, and granted, you know, the, the e-break has been halted on all of our lives right now. 
but in such a way, in such a way that we have been mandated to slow down. And, it, and it's my hope and my dream and my wish for your life that you would not be in such a hurry for things to get back to normal. That we would begin to be okay with this pace of life. That we would begin to reanalyze and reevaluate what is important in our lives. Because if nothing else, has not this pandemic done that to us? Has it not caused kind of the, the, just the dirt to settle to the bottom of, of the well of our hearts? And like we're sifting through it just going like, what matters? And people who have been found out by grace, and my assumption that is many of you, ought to be deeply inspired and committed to finding the lost. Because here's the good news, and I'll just, and I'll just end with this. The good news is that all of us were bar diablos. We, we all, the Bible says, son of the devils, children of wrath by nature. Our very hearts were strung for rebellion, kicking and screaming, opposed to life with God, running from him at every given chance. That is who we are. Yet God sent his only beloved son that anyone who should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So the God who was all sufficient, he needed none of this. Like, hear me on that. Like God was under no divine obligation to send his son, but out of his sheer and shocking love for the world, he would come and he would take on flesh for you. He would become a man. He would experience the fast-paced life that all of us experience. He would experience all of the temptations to prize career and financial stability and success and power and influence and all of the things that the world offers us. He was offered all of them. And he would say, it is the, it is the will of my Father to do what he has sent me to do, namely to become what you could not become. And so for Bar Diablos, children of rebellion by nature, Jesus has made us Bar Jesuses. He's made us son of Yah- sons and daughters of Yahweh. And, here, and here's the good news for anyone. So, some of you might not be children of the living God yet. Here's the good news. The offer has been extended to you through the work of the cross. See, what Sergius Paulus you know, we don't have the details of the sermon he heard, but the essence of it was this. The prerequisite of your resume to become a son of the living God is desperate need. Like it is the only thing that must be listed on your resume. So the path to hell can be paved by both your lawlessness, but also your goodness. And Jesus says you must feel despair from both of those things. Jesus calls sinners out of the world into himself. He makes us whole. He heals us. He takes our brokenness. He brings it together. He binds the brokenhearted. Why? So that we would go into the world, we would be his presence, and that we would find the lost. Are you too busy to catch up to what God is doing in your life? Consider it an invitation to slow down, to listen, 
and to participate in life with God on earth. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Father, it is, um, it is with hearts that are honest right now that we sometimes feel overwhelmed, Lord, that, that you, would, you would pick us on your team. Lord, why would you do such a thing? Lord, there are certainly more intellectual, academic, smarter, nicer, better people than us. But Lord, for some strange reason, you have, you've, you've sought the ragtags of the world and you've brought them into yourself and you've said, you're on my team. And you've chosen to use us in the game of life, which is not a game at all, to bring sinners into life with your son. Lord, help us to be a church that listens to your spirit, that lives with your spirit, and then that actively engages in the world with your spirit. Lord, we believe you are doing a work and a, and a unique work right now. Would you help this church to be found in that work? Lord, that we would long to have your presence more than your activity and that you would use people even like us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 